0: Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. The Buddha, interestingly, in the Satipatthana, the, his guide for mindfulness, broke up our experience into four observable kind of qualities. The first was how we breathe and just how our body feels. The second was our gut feelings, that tension in the stomach, the chest, the throat. The third observable quality was the moods that we're in, uh, moods of the mind. And the fourth was the realm of Dhammas, which means thoughts, the how we interpret the world, how we turn life into an idea or story. Well, it so happens, uh, even the most b- uh, basic introduction to neural anatomy would show that that's exactly the way you could break down the structure of the cognitive brain. The lowest part, the reptilian brain, the brain stem, is what controls our breath and basic body states. The mammalian brain, which is the midbrain and the limbic system, is what creates the fight-flight-freeze, the basic uh, nurture, the craving for food. That's what some people call the mouse brain. And that would be most notable in our experience by gut feelings, Uh, fear, strong states of fight or flight, states of craving. And then The mood, citta, as the Buddha called it, the citta mind, is um, the emotional mind, which is our right hemisphere of the brain, and the fourth foundation, dhammas, the way we interpret life. In fact, many neuroscientists, such as Michael Gazzaniga, refers to the left hemisphere as the interpreter. So... When it all functions well, we are aware and we integrate all the different structures of the brain uh, and we listen to the breath when we are extremely uh, agitated or when our stomach grows tight, we might become aware of fear or if we start to feel a heightened expectation when we're with someone we find attractive, we might know that there's a degree of lust present. That would be known in what's called Vedana, or the Buddha called feelings, pleasant feelings. But the most interesting is that the Buddha broke the brain, the mind, mental functioning into those two distinct factors the citta and the dhammas, or the manas, the emotional mind and the thinking uh, or interpretive mind. And that almost eerily duplicates now what we know about the bilateral brain. The left brain that we are all as adults uh, primarily aware of is the hemisphere that experiences life and turns it all into a story, a representation. The left hemisphere looks at a landscape and turns it into a map, a very... Abstract, rule-driven representation. The left hemisphere goes through an experience and turns it into a story with words and a whole narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Your left hemisphere is what creates a sense of a calendar. It breaks the flow of time into hours, which are, of course, abstract, as are seconds and minutes and days, Well, days are not abstract, but the rest are completely arbitrary divisions. You could break a day into six units, not necessarily 24, but we live our lives in this abstract left hemispheric grid. The left hemisphere is extremely dualistic. It turns life and people into very basic concepts, good and bad, useful, useless, uh, interesting, boring. It breaks the world into these very basic concepts. It turns living, breathing human beings and entire places and cuisines into I hate French food or I, like, I love bibimbap or whatever. <laughs> so it essentially reduces the complexity of life into these very simple uh, representations that are, have very concrete, absolutely known elements to them. There's nothing more left hemispheric, in a way, than the common uh, traffic lights. Red means stop. Green means go. Yellow means drive faster. <laughs> so everybody knows what that means. Those are symbols that have very concrete completely determined meanings. The left hemisphere is caught up in details, beliefs, and opinions. It represents all of life again in words and ideas and abstract. It's most noticeable besides all these dualities that it decontextualizes everything. The left hemisphere looks at objects in the world and extracts them and believes there's absolutely no ramifications for planting monocultural crops with pesticides there's no reason why that should affect bumblebees because the left hemisphere doesn't think in terms of context and connections it just sees the world in terms of isolated objects that are discrete that are not connected and you can pull anything out of a context and it won't have any ramification whatsoever on the ecosystem to which it belongs. The right hemisphere is almost entirely different in its perspective of the world. The brain originally, probably 40,0, 500,000 years ago, right on the cusp of the Homo sapien, right and left hemispheres were probably very similar in that they were both very much like the right brain today, which is deeply aware of the background context, whether a situation is safe or unsafe. Your right brain is largely in adult life working in the background, scanning the environment to let you know whether you can relax or whether you should become vigilant and on guard. Your left brain which is the abstract representational mind, connects and communicates its conclusions and interpretations through language, which you're very much aware of. The right brain communicates to you through emotions, through moods. It's the emotional hub of the brain. The left hemisphere has virtually no connection, synaptic connections to the body. that's why it's literally an abstract realm that represents the world your right when it's concerned not only creates moods but it will speak to you through the body it will make your stomach, your chest, your throat tight it works with feelings to create an underlying uncomfortable state if the right brain concludes that you're not safe it seeks safety and connecti- connection, whereas the left brain only conceives of safety in terms of acquiring something. The left and right brain split made enormous sense, especially during the uh, hunter-gatherer period, the, when we were out in the woods foraging for tools and berries, the left brain being able to immediately know plants and uh, animals in terms of food or not food, edible or not edible, the dualistic mind that would isolate objects and try to acquire them was necessary. And then when we returned back to the clan that we would spend half of our days with bonding and maintaining the adult relationships that ensured our survival, that's when your right brain would take over. It's worth remembering that language only started about 40,000 years ago, so the vast bulk of human history, our interpersonal lives were maintained by our emotions. The touch, the way we looked, our facial expressions, we would communicate but not communicate using language. As recently as ancient Greece, probably around 2,400 years ago, the brain was, in that culture, very bilateral. In other words, the left, of course, had its function in language, but the Greek arts were extremely metaphoric. They weren't determinative. They used right hemispheric symbols and emotions. They never had a concrete message. That's something very much about the right brain. I said that the left brain when it uses a symbol it uses things like a stoplight where you absolutely know what red means. But a classic right brain symbol would be a flag. A flag is there to emote a kind of emotionalism, a kind of patriotic set of emotions. But if you ask to define what does a flag mean, Each of you would come up with a different definition. So the right brain symbols are very, very abstract. They're never nailed down. They don't evoke specific words or ideas, they evoke emotional states. And it's the conclusion of the great neuropsychologist Ian McGilchrist, who I'm a big fan of, that real underlying problem that we face today in our culture is that we have become increasingly skewed to left hemispheric dominance. The right hemisphere with its desire to connect with nature, to try to find happiness through interpersonal connection, its sense of reliance upon uh, uh, community, uh, maintaining Uh, rich, cohesive uh, 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 communities where each member is taken care of has been completely dominated to an extent by the left hemispheric solution of the answer to everything is buy, acquire something more, accumulate. The consumer civilization systematically undermines the right brain's priorities of reconnecting with nature and other people as a means for finding some sense of purpose or meaning. The Buddha said that all of our unnecessary suffering comes from this desire to, through craving, acquire, to accumulate, to amass, to grab onto objects, and items in this vain attempt to never experience negative emotional states. Sadness, loneliness, despair, uh, anger, fear, embarrassment. That's the ultimate expression of the left brain's uh, attempt to remove and isolate us from emotional awareness and to solve the emotional life by getting rid of our emotions, especially the negative ones. The left brain doesn't really mind happiness, but all the others it doesn't like very much at all. One of the most flagrant examples of, uh, and of course the Buddha said, when we give into this, by the way, this craving, this desire to accumulate, to achieve, to amass as a way to not feel the inevitable emotional experiences of life, such as loneliness or sadness or frustration or grief, uh, all we do is become more and more frustrated because the more we, uh, the more ideas and things and objects and even at times uh, uh, experiences we cling on to and we accumulate, the more frustrated we become. But one of the even greatest ways the left hemisphere does us damage is that it uh, constantly points us in the wrong direction in life. Because we become emotionally illiterate in the past, we would have far greater emotional awareness and the ability to integrate feelings constructively into our life as a way to guide us. But as our species has developed the corpus callosum, the thin thread that connects the left and right hemispheres have become has become thinner and thinner. We've become less and less integrated. Women, by the way, have far more, still have thicker corpus callosums, meaning men are, we, are far less capable of integrating our emotions into our decisions which is why we make such terrible leaders (laughs) when we are elected. When we we feel strong emotions in life, when the right hemisphere has been repressed for too long and finally the uncomfortable affects start to arise, such as loneliness or a traumatic image that we've been trying to repress or a traumatic memory, a feeling that we don't want to feel, the left hemisphere will try to figure it out, solve it, try to find something that we can think about, worry about, that will somehow make that anxiety or that depression or that negative emotion go away. Make that intrusive memory go away. The problem is, as Gazzaniga, the great uh, neuroscientist showed, the left brain is almost invariably lying, lying all the time. Uh, Most of the time we actually act in the world, it's actually far more right hemispheric than we're aware of. The left hemisphere just lies and comes up with a reason. It believes we do the things we do. When we feel, for example, uh, anxiety due to a lack of robust human bonds in our life. We feel a sense of vulnerability. The left brain doesn't have a clue what it means and generally it will settle on financial anxiety. I must be worried about money. I don't know why else I would feel this sense of unease and vulnerability. We're constantly being guided towards accumulating self-reliance, going it alone, all the things that the left brain prioritizes at the expense of understanding the extremely essentially important messages that our right brain is sending us through the body, through feelings and moods. If we don't know how to interpret and turn our emotions into positive actions, we will live increasingly isolated or unhappy lives because our emotions are there for a reason. Anger is there to help us set boundaries and to confront injustice. Sadness is the only way we process loss. Joy is the way we celebrate new unions and connections and bonds. Without these emotions, we wind up rudderless, directionless, and incapable of taking the intelligent actions that will guide us successfully through the complex human social field. So Buddhism is in many ways responsible for a vast program of bilateral, believe it or not, integration. In other words, so many of the meditations that the Buddha and insights that the Buddha created were ways to reconnect with the not only the body and all of the messages that are being sent to us constantly by the faster circuits of our right brain. Our right brain is much faster than our left. It teaches us how to integrate these messages into our life, but it also allows us to escape when we are caught up in obsessive thinking, which happens when we are constantly incapable of understanding what the emotional mind is trying to tell us. The left will keep churning, trying to figure out, why do I feel sad? Why do I feel angry? Why do I feel uh, miserable? And it will turn the feeling of anger into a resentment, but very often a resentment at entirely the wrong person. It'll turn sadness, it'll focus sadness on a recent relationship and not understand that much of the sadness we feel in a breakup is due to early relationships that have left permanent emotional scars. So the Dharma, the Buddha came up with a wonderful array of tools that allow us to integrate and understand and reconnect with the, the vital processes of the right brain. None more so than atamiyata, which is the spacious transcendent, non-fashioning mind state that the Buddha prioritized as probably the single state most closest to enlightenment. This state, the Buddha, I'll give you some of the suttas. In the Godata Sutta, one finds release from suffering by not attending to any single object of awareness. What the Buddha here is essentially saying is, not really, but I'm just translating it for him, is saying that the left hemispheric fixation on objects that we need to acquire or people that we want to avoid, this fixating, focused, narrow awareness is not happiness. That the right brain's rich, contextualized, open, spacious awareness that takes in vistas and landscapes, that doesn't focus on any specific object or person or thing, is far, far more sustainably pl- pleasant. In the Bahia Sutta, one of the greats, the Buddha says, when you understand that there is no thing of essence here, there, or anywhere else, then you will awaken again. The Buddha is saying, looking for this thing, this object that we can grab onto to solve everything, this this experience or this single quality is actually looking in the wrong direction. And in the Saliyatana, by developing a tamayata, we rise above all of the mind states based on concentration of single objects. This is transcendence, a mind that doesn't break down into dualities. Again, the left is what breaks down people into good, bad, smart, stupid, useful, useless. The right brain doesn't ever represent life. It simply takes it in wholly and simply only thinks of, in terms of one basic quality, am I safe, am I not safe? Am I well-connected or am I not well-connected? But it never represents somebody as good or bad. It simply always focuses on this present moment. Do I feel safe with this person or not? You could have a long history with someone, but if they suddenly give you a weird glance, your left might still be totally with them, but something in your embodied gut feelings would feel really uncomfortable. And that would be your right brain saying, hey, I no longer feel so safe with this person. And if you didn't know how to read your body and your emotional mind, you wouldn't know that maybe your friend is actually at that moment not being trustworthy. Atamiyata is an open, spacious mind that doesn't ever contract around any single object. It doesn't push anything out. It doesn't focus on anything. It takes in the totality. It is, in a nutshell, like going into a party and instead of looking for your friends, your specific individual friends, it's when you drink in the entire environment, not allowing your mind to focus in on anything. Your right brain is when you go to... A vista, a beautiful landscape, and you drink in the entirety of it. Your left brain is when we take out the smartphone and we take a picture of myself (laughs) with that in the background. So here is now me in this background. Atami Yata returns us to a state that is the earliest, happiest point of our lives. When we were infants, we had an experience, hopefully each of us had, in the dawn of our beings where we were held by one of our parents and loved and held by that caregiver. And there was a sense of completely being connected with the entire universe. There was no me, caregiver, no me, mother or father. There was simply me being held, connected, completely interwoven and interconnected, uh, utterly uh, 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 fully engaged, without any me or not me whatsoever. And that was the blissful state that we all hopefully started our life and then fell away from into the dualities. What Winnicott said, once we're out of the state of being held, we go into the increasingly dualistic mind of this is me, this is all about me, this is not about me, this is about everything else. This is my responsibility, this is not my responsibility. We break up life into all these rigid concepts. Of course, we need both. It would make no sense if you went into your job and somebody said, so did you, you know, create that design and you said, me? We're all interconnected. (laughs) I don't, by the way, have a fixed identity. I am connected with you. My security and yours, we're interwoven. There's really no delineation between... It would be interesting, but you probably would struggle after a while. There's actually a wonderful talk by a neuroscientist, I can't remember her name, on TED. Most of those talks I can't, can't stand. But this was a neuroscientist who had a left brain stroke, and she talks about how she lost language, lost the ability to think conceptually, but after a while she entered the deepest bliss imaginable because there was no longer any sense of her being separate from the world. She was connected. The stroke happened when she was in a shower, and she was now completely supported and connected to the world. She was not this vulnerable little person who entirely lived in this tiny little body that was separate and completely distinct from the earth. That quality of uh, being uh, not separate is in many ways the ultimate goal of all of the Buddha's uh, teachings, he came up with a number of strategies to achieve enlightenment, but each of them ends in a non-dual state where we let go of this sense that my mind is somehow in this head and that everything out there is not. And what I mean by that, it might sound abstract at first, but everything you've ever experienced in your life is a representation that your brain, your mind, is creating. From the furthest star you've ever seen to the closest object, it's all happening as a representation inside of your mind. The idea of where your body begins and ends has been shown by uh, neuropsychology to almost invariably be wrong. We almost invariably... Have a wrong sense of how big our bodies are. Some of us <laughs> some of us think we're much bigger. There was an interesting study of people with uh, eating disorders. When they walked through a doorway, they literally would get really small because they thought their bodies were much larger than they actually are. Other people literally think that their bodies are far tinier. It's an abstract representation that we carry around. So, while we need to have this rigid, dualistic, I am separate from you, I am very distinct from you, I have a completely different identity than you, from an emotional right-brain perspective, all of that is bullshit. We're all working from the right brain perspective with the same fucking seven emotions. Doesn't matter whether we are in a Papua New Guinea tribe or we are we grew up like I did in New York. We all have anger, sadness, fear, joy, shock, disgust, guilt, shame, pride, uh, A few more. That's it. The color palettes we're working to paint our lives is very limited color palette. The idea that any of us from a right brain perspective is different or unique is utterly false. The right brain is constantly aware of how deeply subjective life is, the representation of it. The left, on the other hand, constantly believes in our objectivity and I'm right and you're wrong and you should have known better and my story and my perceptions are more true. So the goal of Atami is to create again this transcendent awareness where we rise above the self, other, me, you, my mind is just in here, it's not out there. This idea that uh, of fixating on any specific object. It's extremely blissful because when in life we generally try to deal with unpleasant uh, feelings or thoughts that we don't want to think or worrying uh, concerns, The left brain just simply tries to figure it out and repress it. This practice doesn't repress anything, nor does it allow the mind to shrink around our problems or our emotional pain. It keeps awareness so spacious that things can arise and pass and they don't hurt anywhere near as much because the mind doesn't collapse around it. The Buddha uses the example, if you put a teaspoon of salt in a cup of water, it becomes undrinkable. But if you put a teaspoon of salt into a reservoir, you can still drink the water from it. Because the mind, that's the reservoir, is so spacious that even the unpleasant sensation in the back or that irksome memory of a conflict we had, or that fear about uh, how we're going to pay the rent, or whether our job will still be there on Monday, or whatever. Whatever it is, it can be there. We don't have to repress it, which never works, as we know from the work of Wagner, which shows repression as a strategy simply leads to more emotional suffering. It allows us to simply be with everything, and therefore not to be driven around, or driven crazy by any thought, any memory, any fear, any sensation. Because the mind is always spacious and open when we're practicing this. So, that's enough, right? We're going to practice it now. And you'll notice that I actually brought some uh, sounds in traditional insight, Atamiyata is also known as big sky meditation because they use the idea that the mind is like a big sky and thoughts and sensations are like clouds passing through. And to keep your awareness on the open sky of your mind, the spaciousness of your awareness, and never allow your awareness to collapse around any sensation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first... Lead you into a basic meditation, then we're going to open it up into a tamayata with sounds, and then we're going to practice it with thoughts. Okay? So, finding a comfortable seated position and gently tilting your head back like you're looking at a tall building. <laughs> Just enough that it discourages slouching Mm -hmm. and closing the eyes. And we'll start with three breaths just to begin to tone the vagal vagus nerve and relax us. So a nice full in-breath, like you're smelling a scented candle through the nose. Lifting your shoulders up if you like, just like you're trying to hold them up. And then as you breathe out, blowing out the candle and dropping your shoulders like you're putting down two bags, heavy bags, breathing in the candle, scented candle again, and then pulling your belly while you're breathing in through the nose, holding it. And then as you blow out the candle through the mouth, softening the belly, and try to breathe into that really soft (coughs) abdominal muscles. And for the third in-breath, squinching the eyes, clenching the jaws, clenching the toes, making fists, clenching your buttocks, everything gets tight, and then Breathe out. So we're simply going to settle the mind by just starting off with a little bit of concentration. And that means select a sensation that you are not creating right now that's just happening on its own. That could be the sound of the fan. It could be the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. It could be the sensations of your body breathing Just try to keep one of those sensations in the front of awareness. You don't have to push anything away. So if a thought, an image constructed by the mind appears, don't fight it. Just keep whatever sensation, the sounds going on, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids, the sensation of your body breathing. Or, if none of those work for you, just recite a very simple phrase, I love you, keep going, over and over in the mind. Just keep one sensation in the foreground of awareness and just allow everything else pass along in the background. We'll just sit here with that for a little while. If your mind, not if, when your mind is lured away from these present sensations with the allure of a really enticing thought, a plan replaying an event, a memory in your mind. It's absolutely no need to get frustrated. It's totally natural. And so much of the practice is simply about being welcoming to your experience So when you become aware that you've slipped away, just welcome that awareness, gently relax back into the sensations that are happening right now and pick one sensation again and keep it in the foreground of your awareness. So we're going to move to the second part. Just allow whatever sensation you've been trying to keep in the foreground of your awareness, just allow it to be shared in awareness with every sensation you can hold in awareness, by which I mean feeling the sensation of contact you're making with the cushion. And while you hold that in awareness, see if you can also feel the subtle movements of your body breathing, the expansion and release of the chest and sternal muscles. sensations of the clothes on your body the lights flickering behind closed eyelids now all of these sensations you might want to categorize as internal inside happening in me but in this meditation see if you can let go of that and just remember that everything you're experiencing right now is happening in your mind there's no inside your mind or outside so the fan is just as much happening in the mind when you feel a sensation in your leg or your hand or your neck. Don't think of it in terms of leg, hand or neck. Just think of it as a sensation or be with it like a sensation without needing to turn it into a specific part of me. My voice is present see if you can hold on to these sensations keeping as many as you can in awareness not allowing your mind to contract now what I'm going to do is play some bells and the normal Mind would completely drop all of the sensations we've just discussed the body, the breath, the flickering lights behind closed eyelids, the sound of the fan, even any moods that we're in, any tightness in the belly. Just keeping it all present. And when you hear the sounds of the bells, just allow them to be there, but don't allow your mind to shrink around and lose connection with all the other sensations. If you can do that, you're developing a tamayata. just allowing the sounds to be there Now at this point, just as you allowed the sounds to be like clouds passing through the spaciousness of your mind, not allowing your mind to focus in on the sounds to the extent that you dropped awareness of the entire experience. Now we're gonna practice with thoughts. Just allow any thoughts, images, memories to rise in your mind. Not pushing them away, not clinging and focusing, always keeping in awareness the rich, vast sensations that are occurring physical, auditory... just keeping your mind spacious so when a thought arises it just presents itself and then it evaporates. It's only when we abandon the rest of the world and climb inside a thought that it creates suffering You can, even if you want, bring welcome into attention a thought that's been very challenging, something that's been bothering you. Just allow it to be there without allowing the mind to fixate, shrink around it. It's just some salt, in a vast reservoir Trying to expand the mind as far and wide as you can to contain every sensation, no longer any inside or outside, no longer any me or not me, the furthest sound being present with the nearest sensation you would find in your body but no longer being located in your body, just a sensation. Just like points of light in a night sky, every sensation present, all equal, all held in awareness. Nothing to push away, everything welcomed, The mind is bigger than any experience in it. It's just the sky, the awareness within which all these sensations arise and pass. And see if you can simply relax into that. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl, and of course the goal of this practice is when you hear the sound, not to allow your mind to shrink around the sights that will present themselves when you open your eyes, but to bring this spacious, open, engulfing, vast awareness with you as much as you can. So one way to do that is when you hear the bowl, just open your eyes enough to integrate sight into the feelings of your body, sensations, sounds, moods, anything, everything you can be aware of in this moment. Sight just being one part of the entirety of the present. All right. So just to sum it all up in one sentence, uh, the meditations in almost all Eastern spiritual traditions up until the Buddhas were concentration where one would just keep one object, say the breath, in awareness and you would keep bringing your mind back again and again and again, which is in a sense a very left brain process. The Buddha was the first to develop meditations that allowed the mind to not focus on a single object, Uh, whether it was mindfulness or choiceless awareness uh, or atamiyata, instead of bringing your awareness back to a predetermined single object, you kept your mind open, spacious, aware, embracing the totality of your life as it is in this moment in time without allowing it to shrink and get tight again. So, I hope that was interesting. Next week I'll probably go back to one of my neurotic talks about emotions.